Ecclesiastes is an autobiography. It's a record of Solomon's quest to understand life. He arrives at two troublesome, haunting observations about life. First of all, there is no clear purpose to life. And secondly, life is full of injustice. It is often unfair. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out as it should. And after giving himself to pleasures of every kind and to the acquisition of comprehensive knowledge and to the accumulation of whatever money could buy, Solomon, who could afford to do all of these things and to search out life, announces his preliminary conclusion, his preliminary conclusion. It is in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, which says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The word vanity could be translated smoke or vapor, and it appears more than two dozen times in this book, conveying the idea of emptiness, of pointlessness, of worthlessness. This could have been translated, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is smoke and a striving after wind. Striving after wind conveys the the futile attempt to try to catch the wind and to constrain it and restrain it. And both metaphors emphasize fruitless effort and that the world is full of that, Solomon wants us to know. Note in verse 14, three critical words. The words, under the sun. They are critical and they appear more than 35 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And by that repeated phrase, Solomon is warning the reader that if one lives and interprets life from a strictly earth-bound perspective, that man or woman cannot escape the conclusion that there is no ultimate meaning to life And this world is filled with staggering paradoxes and injustices that cannot be resolved, leading to anger and cynicism and despair. Under the sun, interpreting life, looking at life just in terms of what is in the world, what is under the sun. He comes to the conclusion that life lacks coherent meaning. The world just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Doesn't that remind you of Asaph in Psalm 73, as Pastor Mark showed us so effectively last week? You'll recall that Asaph revealed how he had almost lost his faith. He almost surrendered to cynicism as he observed Wicked, God-defying people who were prospering. They were enjoying health. They were increasing in wealth. While God-fearing people dealt with growing troubles in their lives. The God-defiant marched through the earth, Asaph said, boastful, 
while the righteous were stricken all day long and chastened every morning, as verse 14 says of Psalm 73. Today, we hear world news, and our hearts ache as we learn of young Christian women in Africa and the Middle East being abducted and gang-raped by evil, sadistic Islamic terrorists for the purpose of humiliation and intimidation. Or we read and see the videos of Planned Parenthood executives callously discussing the harvesting of the organs of aborted babies as a money-making scheme. And yet they are not the ones who are prosecuted for breaking the law. The journalists who went undercover to obtain the videos are indicted, while Planned Parenthood gets cover from politicians and the media who somehow don't care about the breaking of the law by the executives of Planned Parenthood or the brutalization of the unborn for profit. Of course, injustice and frustrating paradoxes are not limited to national or international news. Some of you personally have felt the sting of injustice in your life. The sting of injustice through the betrayal of divorce and unfair custody settlements or through discrimination in the workplace or through the draconian arm of the government forcing you or someone you know to choose between denying his conscience or your conscience and losing your small business that supports your family. Injustices and inconsistencies troubled Solomon as he considered life under the sun. Life doesn't add up. The right is too often not rewarded. While preparing this sermon, I came across the following from Leonard Wolf, British publisher and political theorist. Wolf has written more than 20 books on literature, politics, and economics. But nearing the end of his life, this is what he wrote. I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. In the end, it all seemed useless. In the end, it was all a waste of time. What good did it really accomplish? I was also reminded this week of the French writer, Albert Camus, who thought deeply about the meaning of life. But his conclusion was that life is absurd. He ended up commending the defiance of Sisyphus as the true image of what human existence must be. You'll recall that from Sisyphus, from Greek mythology, Sisyphus was the Corinthian king who was punished for his misdeeds 
and told that he must roll a rock up a mountain only to have the rock roll back down. And then he must roll the rock up a mountain again and do that endlessly. And that was the meaning of life. Atheist and evolutionist Richard Dawkins has concluded that human experience, quote, is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, and note, lacking all purpose. The words of Dawkins and Wolf and Camus sound very much like an echo of Ecclesiastes. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I'm glad that this morning I don't have to say, let us close in prayer. That is not the final conclusion of Ecclesiastes. God does not intend for us to read Ecclesiastes or hear a sermon based on it and then go away in despair or cynicism or depression. If a man or a woman insists on living life without reference to God under the sun, without reference to someone or some word beyond the sun, beyond this dying paradoxical world, then yes, he will find that life will end in meaninglessness and despair. But that is not the last word from God in Ecclesiastes. Throughout the first 11 chapters, and then forcefully in chapter 12, God instructs us how to live wisely, how to live wisely with the cold, hard realities that we confront in this fallen, frustrating world. God's word lays out the way of life. And in the time remaining this morning, I want to summarize in three simple resolutions what God says to us. And I want to challenge each of us to take these resolutions to heart and to live our lives based on them in the midst of a frustrating world that doesn't add up so often. Resolution number one. Resolve to live thankfully. Enjoy your daily benefits and see them as a gift from God. This emphasis upon being thankful and enjoying your daily benefits sneaks through four or five times in chapters 1 through 11. In chapters 1 through 11, Solomon is so uh, wrapped up in describing his search for meaning and coming to this, this initial com conclusion, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is crooked cannot be straightened. Life is meaningless. And yet, God causes, even as he does that search and relates that search to us, four or five times for this truth about seeing God's blessing today and thanking him for it. For example, chapter 2, verse 24 says, there is nothing better than to eat and drink 
and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Chapter 9, verses 7 and 9. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has approved your work. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. In the midst of those first 11 chapters with all of the the frustration of life that he, he points out, this truth keeps sneaking through. Look for a blessing from God today and be thankful for it. Despite the hard realities of the world in which we live, enjoy God's daily gifts and thank him for it. Do you have a good lunch awaiting you after church today? God's advice is enjoy it and thank God for it. Do you have a job? that you return to tomorrow. A job that enables you to provide for yourself and your family. Maybe it's not your ideal job. Maybe there's a lot of frustration in that job, but you have a job to provide for your family. God says, be grateful. Thank God and work with excellence. These verses keep breaking through the gloom and the pessimism of the first 11 chapters. So God challenges us. Resolve to live thankfully. Second resolution. Resolve to live obediently. Throughout God's word, the reader is often treated to um, some masterful summaries of larger segments of scripture. For example, Micah 6.8. Micah the prophet says, What has God said, O man? And what does God require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. What a masterful conclusion of so much that the prophets say. Or do you recall the question that the lawyer asked Jesus? Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And so he's asking Jesus, we have the Old Testament scriptures. What would you say is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus makes this compelling statement. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What a masterful Summary statement of a huge segment of scripture. But in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, we have another one of those masterful summaries. The end of the matter. All has been heard. In other words, Solomon says, I have searched, I have experienced I have asked all the questions, 
And again, he was in a position to do that because of his wealth and the gift of wisdom that God had given to him. And he says, when I when I finish the whole study, when I finish the whole project of asking what is the meaning of life, this is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That is a masterful summary of this book, of the results of the study of this book. And it would be wise for us to memorize that verse and to think about it. Because God is saying, when the search is done, the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. In verse 12, Solomon warns us, right before this masterful conclusion, he warns us, there's no end to the writing and publishing of new books. Let me read that to you. He says, beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. In fact, about one million new books will be published this year. One million. Does it make you feel like you don't know anything? You don't need to weary yourself, Solomon is saying, thinking that you have to read all of these books because somewhere in them is the key, the secret to life. He says, you just wear yourself out. We do well to remember the words of some anonymous person who said, if you want knowledge, go to college. If you want wisdom, go to God. There is value in pursuing a field and getting and attaining excellence in it. This is not to despise education and learning, but you can pursue all of those books and you can pursue all of this knowledge and all these speculations of men, but you'll never find the answer. And that is what Solomon is telling us. At the end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Pretty straightforward for all of us. Fear here does not simply mean to live in terror of God. Make no mistake, there are those passages of Scripture that warn us that we ought to fear God because of the wrath of God that comes. But fear so often in the wisdom literature means to trust and obey and honor. So to, to fear God means to trust God and honor God. And how, how is it that we can honor God? It is by keeping his commandments. Jesus told us the same thing. Jesus said in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. Jesus says, do you say you love God? Man, woman, young person, do you say you believe in God? Do you say you love God? The test of your love of God is, do you listen to his commandments and seek to walk in them? That's the evidence. And what a great promise Jesus gave us here. He said, the person who keeps 
my word loves me and he will be loved by my father and myself and I will disclose myself to him. You want to know more about Jesus? You want to know more about God? Fear God and keep his commandments. And Jesus says, I'll disclose myself to you. What is the best time to begin to fear God and to keep his commandments? What's the best time to do that? Chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. When is the best time? Solomon says, remember your creator when you're young, in your youth. Because otherwise you run the risk that the days are going to come and your heart becomes hardened and calloused and you really don't take pleasure in hearing God anymore. One of the most memorable events of my ministry occurred while I was pastoring First Baptist Church of Northeast. Early one Friday afternoon, I received a call from a member of the church saying that his neighbor had been taken to Hammett Hospital in serious condition, and would I be willing to go see him? I can still vividly recall the man's appearance when I entered his room. He was lying on his side, eyes closed, blood trickling from the corner of his mouth, and apparently barely conscious. I leaned down close to him, and as simply as I could, I explained God's love to us in Christ Jesus offering us forgiveness of sin and a place in heaven. And when I finished, I asked the man, would you like to ask Jesus to be your Savior? With eyes still closed, he mouthed the word, no. I prayed with him. I returned to Northeast. And a short while later that afternoon, Ivan called to tell me his friend had died. As far as I know and as far as the evidence indicates, that man died without Jesus and went out into an eternity without Christ, the only one who could rescue him from the ultimate judgment and wrath of God against sin. If you persist in saying no, the time will come when you may have hardened your heart to the point that you say, I have no delight in them, and it will be too late. At the end of his search, Solomon warned us of that danger. Young people, God is giving a special warning and a call to you today. It is easy with all the buoyancy and joy and discovery of youth to put God off, to reason like this, I will have my fling now, and then I'll think about God and turning over a new leaf later when I'm older. You have no guarantee that you will ever reach older, whatever that means for you. And even if you do reach that age, you have no guarantee that you will even be able to hear God's call anymore. He is not obligated to keep calling. Children, teens, young adults, are you intentionally remembering your creator in the days of your youth? 
And may the Spirit of God grab your imagination this morning, having heard God's word, so that you respond as the old hymn encouraged. Give of your best to the Master. Give of the strength of your youth. Throw your soul's fresh glowing ardor into the battle for truth. What is the best time to fear God and keep his commandments? Whether you're young or you're middle-aged or you're seniors, if you are hearing his voice today, do not harden your heart. Resolve to live obediently to the prompting of God's Spirit. Resolution number three. We've talked about resolve to live thankfully. Resolve to live obediently. And finally, we learn from Ecclesiastes, resolve to live with hope. God tells us in verse 14 that there is a day of judgment ahead. Verse 14 says, for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. We are told that God is going to bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing. A day is coming when all the truth will be known. No evil deed or good deed is going to remain hidden. And so Hebrews 9.27 reminds us, it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Almost the last verse of the Bible is, in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly, or coming soon, bringing my recompense, or that could be reward, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. Despite the injustices, despite the apparent triumph of evil, we can live with hope in the face of these hard realities. There is meaning and there is purpose to life because God is. He will have a day of judgment, he has told us, when the crooked things will be made straight in our personal histories. And when human history will find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There is ultimate justice. Because everything and everybody in the history of this world. Is subject to a righteous God. Who knows secrets. And who is coming to reveal and judge. One of the anchor verses of my life. Is Acts 17, 30 through 31, which says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. History is going somewhere. It is going to the day of judgment, where the secrets are going to be revealed, and righteousness is going to be established. Evil will be punished, 
and righteousness rewarded. And how do you know that's true? Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says that God has put eternity in our hearts. We know that that's true because God has put within us eternity. When a man says, I don't believe in the afterlife, I don't really believe that that's true. He is either lying or his heart has become so hardened from saying no to God that he's arrived at that position. But God says, I put eternity in your hearts. But this verse tells us something further and greater still. God has said, I have shown to the world that there is a day of judgment coming and I have fixed that day of judgment and I'm going to make the crooked things straight and I'm going to make the right, the wrong things right and I have proven it to the world by raising my son from the dead. That's the proof. No man will have an excuse. If life under the sun, if life under the sun is all there is, then nothing ultimately matters. Life is only a rat race. Work hard. Succeed all you can. But in the final analysis, all is futility. Everything ends in death. Everything ends in nothingness. But in his final conclusion, Solomon says everything matters because God is and judgment day is coming. So in light of this, remember these three resolutions this week. Resolve to live thankfully. Resolve to live obediently. Resolve to live with hope despite the hard realities of life. We end with good news this morning. Like the rest of the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes points forward. We live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the resurrection. And the last word does not have to be vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That does not have to be the last word. I am thankful for the declarative statement of Christ's resurrection. I am glad that in this world where things don't add up and where evil and not good is too often on the throne and where injustice often mocks the weak and where defiant mankind raises its fist against God and his law and his people, I am glad that the risen Christ will have the last word. His words ring out. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his deeds. God's word has spoken. Every one of us has a simple profound choice to make today and tomorrow and every day that God gives you life. And that choice is this. Will I live under the sun or will I live under the sun? I urge you to choose life under the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. 
it is increasingly, increasingly the path less traveled. But it will make all the difference now, in this life, and beyond death, in the life to come. Are you going to live under the sun or under the sun? Some of us have decisions to make this morning. In a moment, I'm going to close in prayer and then the offering will be taken. But as that offering is being taken, I urge you, if you have a decision to make with God, to come and kneel and pray. Ask for help if you want from one of the pastors, myself, one of the elders. But make that decision. Don't let your heart become hardened. I urge you to choose the Son of God. It will make all the difference now and one moment beyond death.